0: Amen. Well, it's been a full and great morning already, and I hope that you've enjoyed the fellowship, enjoyed hearing from our missionaries, the reading of the word, the singing of praises to the Lord. It's just so good for us to be together on these Sunday mornings, and I enjoy it very much. If you're visiting here with us today, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. You should find a card just in the chair back in front of you. You can fill that out. Let us know that you're here if you would like to do that, and if you would appreciate somebody contacting you, we would be glad to do that. You should also know that we go through books of the Bible here, and so... For those a regular part of the Sunrise family, your Bible may start falling open now to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 26 today, and this is part two of a message that we began last week, Sin, Sickness, and the Savior. And we're looking at a series of stories that Jesus have to do with Jesus interacting with people who aren't whole people who are sick, and today we'll see the man who was paralytic, he was paralyzed. And I know in all of us, you've had some educational journey behind you. In your educational journey, you have to learn how to write. Some people, writing is a funny thing. Some people love to write. You sit down with a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. But regardless of whether you enjoy that process or not, there is something intimidating about there being nothing there. And you've all experienced that. I have to get words onto this screen or onto this paper somehow, starting with a blank piece of paper. For me, as I write sermons and write other things, I have to have a clear purpose and then my outline sort of in mind, and then I can work from there. But I'm kind of paralyzed until I get that going. What's the main point? What are we trying to communicate? Well, when we come to the scripture, it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. We believe that God has so purposed so that we have his word contained here in the Bible for us. It is the very word of God. But we also recognize that our understanding is that God used normal human beings in order to communicate his word to the world, and one of those normal human beings was this writer named Luke, who gives an account for the things that he understands and knows about the ministry and life of Jesus. And so Luke is making an argument in his book, and he's wanting to convince you specifically that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, And so he's built a case for that, and that is the Gospel of Luke, just like the other Gospel writers do. In the New Testament, we have four Gospels, is how we say it, the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke is one of those Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, and he writes with intention, he writes with structure. And so we're here in the midst of a little section where we're looking at sin, sickness, and the Savior— Last week, we looked at skin disease, purity laws, and compassion, and I was thinking, you know, what better Mother's Day passage than one about leprosy? Because you moms are always dealing with, hey, mom, what's this on my hand? So it's kind of natural. So we looked at that last week, this man who was a leper, and there's a whole context behind that. And then today, we're going to look at paralysis, forgiveness, and confrontation. We see Jesus heals this paralytic man, and it's an amazing story. And I hope the familiarity of this story doesn't ruin it for you, because it's really, really amazing. This is a story where the paralytic man, man's friends lower him down through the roof. They're willing to climb up on the roof and take it apart and lower him on his, on his cot so that he can be there in front of Jesus. And so that's the story we'll look at today. Wanna show you, maybe this chart will help, maybe there's just too many lines and words, and if that's you, just come back in just a minute. But if you're into charts and things, I love charts, helps me visualize and see things. So you have a series of stories here: the catch of fish, healing the leper, the paralytic man, calling of Levi, harvesting on the Sabbath, and then the healing on the Sabbath. And you see there's different emphasis that Luke has, and he has a purpose for his writing in each of these. The catch of fish, of course, he's showing him, showing the people, he has authority over nature. And in Luke's narrative, what you see immediately happen after that is Peter, who's on the boat, realizes this is no ordinary normal man. And he says, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinner. And so this first story of dealing with Jesus' authority over nature and then Peter's reaction that I'm a sinner, we have the healing of the leper, What happens next? We see Jesus' authority over sickness. And again, the problem of sin is pronounced because this man was unclean because he had leprosy. And so there was a whole series of verses and rules and regulations in the Old Testament. We looked at some of those last week in Leviticus 13 and 14 about what do you do with someone who had leprosy? And probably more Accurate to say skin disease of some variety and sort. Could have been leprosy, but some sort of skin disease. How do you deal with that? The amazing thing is that Jesus reaches out and touches the leper, which you weren't supposed to do because he was unclean. By touching that person, that was supposed to make you unclean. I've touched someone who's unclean. Now I'm considered unclean. Not with Jesus, though. When Jesus touches him, he transfers his cleanness to him. And this becomes a picture of the gospel itself and what Jesus does. So, the healing of the leper, all of these laws, pervasive over and over and over again. In the Old Testament, you had laws about all sorts of things 613 of them in the Old Testament. They lived by the law, these people. Clothes, diet, work schedules, everything was driven by this, including something like being a leper. You had to be ostracized from the community, and Jesus breaks through all of that, touches the man, makes him clean, tells him to go, show yourself to the priest, go through the purification ritual and rites so that you can be clean again. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So that was last week. Today we're going to look at this man who is paralyzed, and he is restored, but it's not just that. Again, we're dealing with this issue of sin, which we'll talk about more in just a moment. Then he's going to call a tax collector. And these guys were not known for being moral and upright human beings. He's going to call Levi. Also, Matthew is, well, we know him more as Matthew. And then we have two stories that deal with the Sabbath. So, that's what's coming up here in Luke. So, let's get into our story uh, today. Paralysis, forgiveness, And confrontation. Let's read it and then we'll walk through together. Verse 17, Luke chapter 5. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst of Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, what do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up what he had been laying on, and he went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they were glor- and they glorified God, and were filled with awe, saying, "We have seen extraordinary things today. What an amazing thing that's going on here!" So we have this problem: this man who is paralyzed, and he has an extra problem of he can't get in because this house is so packed with people who are wanting to hear Jesus teach. So in verse seventeen. It tells us that he was teaching, and then at the end of the verse it says, And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So you have the two things, and we see this often in the ministry of Jesus. He's basically doing two things around Israel as he ministers in different places he's teaching and he's healing, he's doing miracles, supernatural acts. Jesus had created quite a stir at this point. People are hearing about all the things that he's done, about his miracles, about his teaching, about him standing up in Nazareth and saying, today, these scriptures are fulfilled. And so, they start to send envoys from all over the country to find out who is this Jesus guy, sending little teams. A few people here that are mentioned, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So, we have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Who were these guys? The Pharisees. Let's talk for a minute about the Pharisees first. These guys become really important to the story, and the tension point with Jesus and the Pharisees builds and builds, kind of starts here, and it builds throughout the Gospel of Luke. The Pharisees will see Luke doesn't tell us a lot about them at this particular point, but it's a progressive story. Remember, it's, it's going to move forward. And so as, as we move along, Luke reveals more and more about Jesus' confrontation and his understanding of the Pharisees. Uh, it's sort of like a movie that'll start out with a scene, and you have a couple of characters, and something happens, and you maybe think, well, that's interesting, but I don't really know where to put all that yet. Luke does a little bit of that as he's telling us the story of Jesus. So the Pharisees are coming, and he's He's careful to let us know they're coming from all over the place. It says from Galilee, which is where they are, in the northern part, Judea, more general term, kind of the middle, and then Jerusalem, which would be in the south of Israel. So you got guys coming from all over the place, and they're wanting to hear Jesus, and they're wanting to figure out what he's saying. Now, they're not coming because they are excited about Jesus being there, and we're going to learn that a little bit later on. They're coming because they think that he is a problem. He's a threat, and he's a threat to the power and control that they have over the people. And we'll see that becomes really clear a little bit later on. So, who are these guys? Let's talk for a minute about the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a really bad rap. If you walk up to somebody today, especially in the context, like our little churchy bubbles, and you call somebody a Pharisee, you're probably not saying, you know what, you're really somebody that knows the scripture and are very astute in the law and you care deeply about obeying the Lord. It's probably not what you mean, right? Because Jesus confronts these guys. But let's give a little bit of credit here. We're gonna, we're gonna whack the Pharisees a little bit later in Luke, but let's just understand who they were here for a moment. These guys knew the scriptures. They, you wouldn't want to get in Bible trivia with them. They knew their Bible, specifically the Old Testament, which is the the scriptures as they understood it. They knew their Bible. They knew it very well. They were concerned, some at least, were concerned for proper interpretation, for application, at least on their best days. And again, we'll see some stories that will cause us to ask questions. But they were the practitioners and the ethicists of the day. They knew the word. They knew the law. They were really, in a technical sense, they were lay people, meaning they weren't employees of the temple. They weren't priests. The priests were the professionals. They were lay people in a technical sense, although, of course, some were most likely supported by their work as Pharisees. But they weren't of the priesthood, is the point that I'm trying to make there. And they were known for their strict adherence to the law. Now, that's good, but again, it becomes very evident progressively as we move through the gospel that a lot of these people, they just didn't care about the people. They didn't care about the laws. They didn't care about the restrictions that they were putting on people. Their motives were all wrong in many places. We see that, and we see that Jesus has some extremely harsh words for the Pharisees in other contexts. Now, it also says the Pharisees and then the teachers of the law. The teachers of the law, I don't think Luke is introducing us to a new group here. I think what he's saying is the teachers of the law were sort of a subset of the Pharisees. And so, you have these people who were legal experts, they had an emphasis in the teaching and understanding of the law. We don't really have an exact carry over. There's not an exact parallel to the these guys in our context and understanding. So it's maybe hard for us to put our arms around exactly who these guys were, but they were very important. And their opinion mattered a lot. And I'm sure some in Jesus' circle would would be like, hey man, uh, there's some important people coming today. Um, you you need to you just need to know that. Um, you need to know there's some important people here in some ministry context that I've seen and heard of in the past. They called him occasionally, we have political chapel today. Somebody who's coming for means and purposes that you just need to know that somebody important is here. These guys were important, significant. Jesus doesn't really care, as you're gonna see. So they're coming, the confrontation is set up. Now let's look at this paralyzed man in verse 18. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed... A man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So there's no room for them to come in the house, and I'm wondering partly if it's because of all of these self-righteous Pharisees who are crowded in the house, trying to trap Jesus in his own words. Like, hey, there's a guy that actually like wants to see Jesus here. If you guys could just clear out, let's do the let's do the uh, the the, uh, the trial later. Um, This guy actually is trying to see Jesus, they can't get in, and so then the guys go to the roof, and in that culture and context, the houses, probably some form of uh, beams across the roof, and then maybe some sort of mud, uh, like adobe type of building, and then thatch would be laid on top of that. These guys go up to the top, and they start to dig a hole, dismantle the roof, and then lower the guy down. Now, that's just an absolutely amazing, amazing thing. We all need friends like that in our lives, don't we? Guys who would carry you on a mat, haul you up to the ceiling, and you just wonder what the guy was thinking at this point, don't you? Like, did y'all? what kind of knot did you tie on that? That would be my question. Um, what kind of, what, what'd you use there? I'm curious about that. Because you're lowering them down. I mean, and the guy is... He can't help himself, he's defenseless because he's paralyzed. Um, And so this is a lot of trust he's putting in in these men. So they take him to the roof, they lower him down and then something absolutely profound happens. Look at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what is so profound about this is it says when he saw their faith, now, is the man's faith, the man on the mat, is that included in the there? Or is he more referencing the people who lowered him down? I think it's probably the people who are lowering him down. He said, they are going to these measures to bring this guy to me, and he heals him. It's amazing. He saw their faith, and he does something. He heals this man. Now, I wanna talk about this idea of healing just for a moment, We have uh, many faith healers out there today, so-called faith healers, and their testimony, what they practice and teach doesn't really square at all with the ministry of Jesus here. I'll show you why. A couple of things happen here. Um, Sometimes Jesus heals someone because of somebody else's faith, all right? Opposite of faith healers who say, you have to believe this in order to be, to obtain your healing. Like in John chapter four, he heals the official son and he heals the official son without him even being there. So this official, he comes to Jesus, he's requesting, he says, my son is dying and he heals him, but he heals his son without his son even being present with him. He goes back home, finds out his son is well. He asks the guys, his servants say, about what time did he start getting better? And he's doing the timeline in his head and he says, this is exactly when, I had this conversation with Jesus. Sort of like when you call into tech support and they take control of your mouse on your computer. You guys have done that probably. So you probably work in the tech industry. And all of a sudden your computer starts doing things on its own. It's like, you know, the kind of VPN into your, your system. And they take control. Jesus does this miracle from afar because of this guy's faith. Doesn't say anything about his son's faith. Similar kind of thing here their faith they believed i could heal you so, and they're lowering you through the roof so i'm going to do it sometimes it's that sometimes it's the person's faith who's being healed we'll see this story coming up in uh, a little bit later in luke this woman comes up behind jesus they're pressed into a crowd and she touches the hem of his garment and immediately she's healed of this flow of blood that she had had for years and years and years that the doctors couldn't do anything about. And says that she, she's made whole. And Jesus says, your faith has made you well. So somebody else's faith, somebody gets a healing, your own faith, got that lady healed. And then sometimes he even heals people that don't believe. That's the mind boggling one to me. He heals the man in John chapter five. He heals this man, says, do you wanna be well? Do you really wanna be well? And then he heals him, and he circles back, finds him in the temple, and he says, hey, you better stop sinning or something worse than this is gonna happen to you. He comes back and warns him. So it's such a different model than what we see practiced today in contemporary movement with the faith healers. And what really gets me about what some of these so-called healers do is they put it on the person, If you don't get your healing, why is it? Because you didn't believe. It's your faith. It's your fault. And what that does is it deflects any sense of I'm doing something wrong or maybe I'm not authoritatively speaking on behalf of God like I'm claiming to. Really bugs me when people practice and try that. So he saw their faith. He does this work. But notice something here. He heals the man but he doesn't immediately begin with talking about his physical problem. He begins to talk about his spiritual problem. Verse 20, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And scribes and Pharisees began to question saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Your sins are forgiven you. As we've talked about before, there's a close connection in the Old Testament between being sinful and being sick. There's this tight relationship. Many of the people of the day would quote verses like this. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? And they saw these just in parallel with one another. To be cleansed of your iniquity was to be clear of your diseases and vice versa as well. And so they very much thought this way. Jesus taps into that and says, your sins are forgiven. Well, of course, this doesn't go over real well because the Pharisees rightly, again, they knew their Old Testament, they rightly, the Hebrew scriptures, only God can forgive sin. So who do you think you are? Who is this blasphemer? You're misrepresenting God. And so they're having this conversation amongst themselves. But Jesus, verse 22, when Jesus... Notice what it says. He perceived their thoughts. He answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? He perceived their thoughts. Now, it's a little bit unfair when you're having an argument with somebody who knows what you're thinking, right? You're probably not going to win that round. He perceived their thoughts. As I mentioned before, and I'll Continue to make this argument throughout the Gospel of Luke. I don't believe Jesus lived with the perpetual cheat code, where he could just sort of turn it on, X-ray vision style, know everybody's thoughts, you know, immediately accessible. I don't think he lived in that way. And I think what Luke is presenting, and the other Gospels represent, is he's a a man empowered perfectly by the Spirit of God, walking in obedience to the Lord, and at different points in time, he he is giving privy access to the thoughts of people. And we'll see that happen a few different times. He's perfectly in step with the Spirit and with the Father, but living life as a man. And in this case, reveals, the Spirit reveals what these guys are thinking. So Jesus, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. He's not trying to create a dichotomy here. He's just saying these things are very much linked together. The issue is this idea of authority. Verse 24, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. This term son of man, he's playing off of the book of Daniel, which again, as people who knew their Bibles, they knew their Old Testament, they would have picked up on this. Jesus referring to himself as a son of man. That's, he's playing off of that. Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Jesus is referring to himself using this Daniel kind of language, which would not have been lost on these Pharisees. The son of man, I am the son of man and I have authority to forgive sins. Now this is a problem as well. This is a huge problem of having the authority to deal with sins. In the Old Testament, how was sin dealt with? It was the sacrificial system. You had to bring a sacrifice and there were all kinds of requirements, rituals, purity rites to deal with sin. But Jesus, being Jesus in the moment, says your sins are forgiven. You couldn't do that. You can't do that. You can't forgive their sins. God must do that, and, he, and you must go through the proper channels. You can't give permission for that. You can't do that. I can't give you that right. We have different roles that people are in, and you must respect that. But Jesus claims that for himself. So the Old Testament and the problem of sin... There's a lot of verses, and I want to point us to a couple of these this morning. So what we have is Jesus is tapping into the problem of sin and then this new work that he's doing, this new work, this new thing that he's a part of. You see, many of the Pharisees and people of the first century, they had turned the sacrificial system into just something that you do. You just do the thing, you check the box, and that's all you really have to do. But Jesus is going to say, No, that's really not what it's all about. Isaiah chapter 1, I want to go to this. There's a strong indictment that Isaiah gives the people. And the reason this one is so relevant is because what Isaiah is doing is he's talking about things that they were supposed to do, they were prescribed to do. So, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, Isaiah is writing, and he's writing to Israelites, and he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, class, what do we know about Sodom and Gomorrah? That's not a compliment, all right? Not a compliment at all. You rulers of Sodom, you're going to become like Gomorrah, you people of Gomorrah. He goes on to say, "'What is this multitude of your sacrifices?' says the Lord. "'I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams "'and the fat of well-fed beast. "'I do not delight in the blood of bulls "'or of lambs, of goats. "'When you come to appear before me, "'who's required of you this trampling of my courts? "'Bring no more vain offerings, incense and abomination, "'new moon and Sabbath, and the the coming, uh, "'the calling of convocations. "'I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly.'" He goes on, "'Your new moons, your appointed feasts, "'my soul hates them.'" well, that's a problem. And he goes on to ask, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Well, in one sense, God did. God said you need to do these things. God said you need to bring these sacrifices. What's the problem? Their hearts were completely disconnected from the sacrifices they were bringing. God never wanted sacrifice just to be the act this is over and over again in the Old Testament. There's a few other places that say this. Hosea 6 and verse 6, it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Jeremiah 6 and verse 20, what use to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba or sweet cane from a distant land. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable nor your sacrifice is pleasing to me. So, they're sacrifices that they're making. Just because you go through the proper channels, that doesn't mean anything if your heart is not in the right place. So what do we do with this? Jesus is redefining how you're gonna be forgiven. And this is, again, a developing story. i want to read a few verses from Hebrews chapter 10 that speak of this relationship that we'll eventually see after the resurrection, the death of Christ and the resurrection. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. And then verse four, the payoff, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The Pharisees had no concept of this. I'm coming, I forgive this man, tell him to rise and walk, and it does not have to go through the temple because the temple is now me. We're making, it's a new system. A new way is being initiated and inaugurated and it's through Jesus, not through the temple. It's an amazing thing Jesus is doing here. I want to finish this off with just a few reflections on this idea of forgiveness and hope as well. A few observations and some important, I think, ways to maybe wrap this up and tie it together. One, the problem of sin is universal. Everybody is a sinner. Everybody is a sinner. I don't actually think there are many people today that you'll talk to that would deny that that's true. Maybe you have some in your life that would say, I've never, ever actually done anything wrong. I don't think most people would say that. I think most people would recognize that there is such a thing as right and wrong. So the problem of sin is universal. This is part of Paul's point in the book of Romans. Hey, Gentiles, you have the law of God written on your heart and you violated it. You're a sinner. Jewish people, you've violated the law of God. You had it written down for you. You still didn't do it. Romans 3, in good Southern English, All y'all are sinners. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile alike. It's a universal problem. Everybody needs forgiveness. Next, the sacrificial system was what we call typological. It's a type, meaning that it points to a greater reality. All of these sacrifices, the verses we just read, they were meant to point us to a better sacrifice. Often, when we take communion here at our church, I'll say something along these lines. We're not here today to offer a sacrifice. We're here to recognize a sacrifice that has already been made. The better sacrifice has been made. We don't have to do it again. Jesus satisfied that system. Hebrews 10 and verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. See, that's why When you came in this morning, I noticed nobody brought in any bulls or goats or sheep to be sacrificed today. I'm grateful for that. Uh, As I mentioned before, I'm very glad to be a pastor, not a priest. There was a lot of work butchering. It was constant. Why do we do that? Why do we not offer blood sacrifice anymore? Because Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Because of that, we know his sacrifice was sufficient. It was perfect. It was full and complete. And then, lastly, works righteousness is a constant temptation. Have you ever received a gift that was very large? Maybe for you. Maybe it was a sum of money. I remember when I graduated high school. I remember my grandparents at the time, which would have been a few years ago now, 1996. I graduated high school, and for some of y'all, you're like, "Oh, he's a youngster." Others are like, "Man, that was a long time ago." Did Y'all wear the baggy pants back then? Uh, yes, we did. So, it, uh, and at the time, my, my grandparents said, "Give me a thousand dollars for graduation," and that's that's a sum of money now for, for many of us. But at the time, it just seemed like I, I need to go. I need to like move into my grandparents' house and like cut their grass every week, and you know, pressure wash their driveway. And you, you feel a sense of what some have called a debtor's, debtor's ethic. I'm just, I'm just sort of enslaved to this person forever because they gave me a gift. And I, I felt that way very much to my grandparents at the time, and it was such a generous and kind gift. And I think we do that sometimes with the gospel. When you come to reality and you come to understand the universal problem of sin, when you come to understand the, the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is free life and eternal life in Jesus Christ you come to understand that and it creates this gap and you feel compelled to do something i got to pay this off nobody wants to be a freeloader right i got to work i got to i got to give some money i got to do something to pay this off and i think the sacrifice of christ coming to understand the gospel Of course, it should reorient and rearrange our priorities and who we live for. That's because we're transferring kingdoms into this kingdom of light. But it's not to pay him back. You don't need to think of it like that. You can't deposit enough good things into this account. It doesn't work that way. But it's a constant temptation. I gotta pay God for my salvation. Well, you can't. You can't. It's free. It's full it's complete. This man, hey, take up your bed and go. Just take up your bed. Go. You're clean. You're free. You're forgiven. That's exactly the offer for us today. Take up your bed and go. Take it up. It's done. You can't pay him back. It's a constant temptation for us to feel this weight and tension. Lord, thank you so much for your word and just watching Jesus interact with these people is just an amazing reality. He's so compassionate and kind. Lord, we see that those who are broken and humble before Christ, he treats with such gentleness and he treats them with such kid gloves and he reorients their life. He puts them on the right path. He points out issues and he shows them how to live a life that's pleasing to you. Lord then for those who are obstinate like these Pharisees particularly in passages that we'll see a little bit later who are just opposed to the things of God they're opposed to Jesus they're opposed to the way that he interacts gently with people and we say that he has very harsh words to say and I think this is instructive for us Lord we want to be those who are humble and gentle before you and we want that grace and mercy poured out on us your the burden is light your yoke is easy you are gentle with those people. Lord, maybe for some in here who are struggling with a sense of debtor's ethic for the gospel, help them to embrace the grace that they have in Christ and to stop driving themselves crazy thinking that they are somehow going to repay you for their salvation. They just can't do it. It's free. It's full. It's complete in Christ. Lord, reset our perspective. Remind us of our hope that we have in him today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.